0: Gandhi famously said, First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Welcome to A Better Tomorrow, a podcast about the people building a better, brighter, more sustainable future. I'm your host, Nick Kerwin. Today, we will be talking about pipelines and nonviolent protest. Gandhi is considered to be the father of nonviolent protest. His nonviolent movements are credited with achieving Indian independence from imperial British rule. One of his most famous demonstrations took place in the spring of 1930. On March 12th, Gandhi led a group of 78 trained followers from his ashram on a march of more than 200 miles to the sea. Over the course of the next three and a half weeks, the small group grew to thousands. And then, on April 5th, Gandhi arrived at the sea. He waded into the ocean and onto a section of mudflats where the evaporated water had left a layer of salt. In front of the crowd, Gandhi bent down and scooped up a handful of salt. In doing so, he violated a British law that mandated that the people of India must buy their salt from the government. Within days, hundreds of thousands of Indians were engaged in civil disobedience and collecting their salt on their own. The British cracked down and made over a 100,000 arrests. But unlike suppressing a violent rebellion, the effect of the crackdown was to further delegitimize imperial British rule. While many of his contemporaries mocked his focus on the salt law, It was the symbolic significance that proved to be so brilliant. Next to air and water, Gandhi asserted, salt is perhaps the greatest necessity of life. Which brings us to present day, the struggle for clean air and clean water. The front lines of this struggle are in Standing Rock, North Dakota. Many of you, I'm sure, have seen posts on social media about the protests to stop the North Dakota Access Pipeline. A pipeline... It would bring about 500,000 barrels of oil a day from the Bakken oil fields to Illinois for refinement. But there has been woefully little coverage of the protests in the mainstream media. Over the course of the months-long protest, tensions continued to rise. Local police and private security forces escalated their efforts to break the will of the protesters. Police used rubber bullets, concussion grenades, and fire hoses in sub-freezing temperatures. They jailed protesters in kennels, beat people with billy clubs, and sprayed crowds with industrial-strength mace. Protesters have been blinded by rubber bullets, attacked by dogs, subjected to strip searches. One protester lost her arm from a concussion grenade, and dozens have suffered through hypothermia. All of these authoritarian actions evoke memories of the civil rights movement some 50-odd years ago. Except this time around, they're on behalf of a corporate interest. At the center of this struggle is the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. After people in Bismarck, North Dakota objected to the pipeline being built just north of town due to safety concerns and concerns that their water would be contaminated, the Army Corps of Engineers rerouted the pipeline to run south of Bismarck and through the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation, a reservation that is considered sovereign land according to the 1868 Treaty of Fort Laramie. Understanding that their land was being unlawfully seized, ancient burial grounds being desecrated, and their main water source, the Missouri River, was being threatened with contamination, hundreds of indigenous activists took action and shut down construction of the multi-billion dollar pipeline. Over the next few months, thousands of additional activists descended upon Standing Rock to stand in solidarity with the Sioux Tribe. As the movement continued to grow, actions by the local police... Private security forces, the governor of North Dakota, and the Army Corps of Engineers became increasingly more violent and draconian. The Army Corps of Engineers announced that it would close access to the camp, threatening to blockade supplies, first responders, and new activists from getting to camp. And the North Dakota governor signed an executive order to force evacuation of the camps. And then over 2,000 Iraq war veterans arrived at camp to stand in solidarity and act as a human shield to prevent the authorities from forcibly removing people. The nation's media outlets could no longer ignore the story. Men and women who fought to protect the freedom of Americans were now standing to protect the rights of indigenous Americans. Within three days, the Army Corps of Engineers formally denied the permit for the pipeline, handing the protesters a huge victory. And yet, that victory appears to be only temporary. On the heels of Donald Trump's inauguration, tensions are again rising. Clashes between police, private security forces, and protesters have resurfaced. And the North Dakota legislature is now considering a bill that would make it legal to run over protesters blockading traffic. This renewed escalation forebodes of more violence to come. But like the nonviolent protests led by Gandhi and Martin Luther King, we understand how this ends. The question is how much more human suffering will have to be endured in the meantime. We have a great episode for you today. In the first half of the episode, we'll be taking a closer look at the Dakota Access Pipeline protest. And in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by Doug Hayes, who is the lead lawyer for the Sierra Club in the battle to kill the Keystone XL Pipeline. Stay tuned. This will be an endearing and powerful episode. We turn now to first-hand accounts from a Standing Rock press conference in late 2016. Here is Tara Houska addressing indigenous rights and mistreatment of the protesters.
1: These are Lakota, Dakota, Nakota lands. These are indigenous lands. Um, We have been pushed around by the government since they first arrived on our shores. And uh, this should not be the conversation in 2016 we shouldn't be having the conversation of violating treaty rights and um, treating us as less than, throwing our people in dog kennels and strip searching them and violating their human rights. That should not be happening, but it is. So enough is enough, and we're standing together with thousands of allies and supporters from around the world. Millions of people are following the fight at Standing Rock. They are standing with Standing Rock. um, And our fight will continue. And I mean, I think You know, this violence is because they're afraid. They're afraid of the power there is in prayer. They're afraid of the love we have in our hearts for the people and for the future generations.
0: And LaDonna Brave Bull Allard, continuing on the topic of injustice.
1: I truly believe in the law. And what I see now is the law is not working. So what do you do with injustice? You stand up against injustice. You stand, you stand in prayer, you stand in the best way you can, but you stand.
0: And finally, here is Faith Spotted Eagle speaking to the issue of water protection.
1: We also have uh, water rights, water security to the um, the riverbed. And so it's very, very apparent that uh, water security is being violated, water meaning Not only us, but the 17 million people downstream who have become our allies. So it's as it should be because it's a legal chess game and it's more and more transparent as the other side tries to make up reasons to be concerned about us. But I think the biggest thing is the legal liability. They don't want to be responsible for anything. But on behalf of my people who are the end of the camp people of the we are most grateful that you are standing with us in the defense along with the other campfires that have come forward and the seven council fires. At a historic time in history, we're standing together and we've dreamed about this time.
0: The chess game at Standing Rock is poised to continue. I recommend making an effort to seek out coverage on social media and online. The movement has taken root, but the struggle is far from over. The fight to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline is not only important in its own right, But just like Gandhi's salt protest, its symbolic importance connects it to struggles all across the globe for clean water, clean air, and justice for all. We turn now to another incredibly important symbolic struggle, the battle to stop the Keystone XL pipeline. We are joined by Doug Hayes, the lead attorney with the Sierra Club, who spearheaded the group's legal efforts to defeat the pipeline. Stay tuned. So joining us today is Doug Hayes. Doug is the lead attorney representing the Sierra Club in the fight to stop the Keystone XL pipeline. Thanks, Doug, for being with us today.
2: Sure, glad to be here.
0: As we've talked about a little bit in our pre-interview, uh, I wanted just to get into you know, how the Sierra Club decided to get involved in the fight to stop the Keystone XL pipeline in the first place.
2: Sure. Well, uh, the, so the Sierra Club got started... With Keystone XL in 2008, 2009, uh, at that point, you will recall that you know, it was the 2009 was the first year of Obama's presidency. There was a lot of you know, the Democrats controlled both houses of Congress, and there was a lot of of hope that we would get a, a comp- comprehensive climate bill passed. Um, and of course, the the cap and trade uh, legislation was was unsuccessful. So. At that point, there was this uh, Keystone XL kind of emerged as this very important climate issue that the president had, you know, complete authority over. He could either grant it or or deny it. And so Sierra Club saw this as a as an important project to oppose in terms of its climate impacts, just because of the, of the tar sands development in Alberta. You know, it's just this one of the most carbon intensive forms of oil in the world. It you know, it's it's this these deposits that are that are solid, it's sort of like a asphalt type substance that contains bitumen, which is which is the, the oil deposit, and it it's underlies the boreal forests up in Canada. So what they have to do is, you know, strip mine the forests, mine, you know, two tons of, of earth for every to get a barrel of oil. And, you know, it just leaves this, this moonscape of, of, you know, toxic lakes, Uh, you know, cause all the First Nations communities up there are are seeing the increased rates of cancer and the fish are, are, you know, deformed. So it's just on every level, it's just a, you know, the air quality impacts of of all the development up there. So it's really, you know, one of the most destructive forms of, of fossil fuel extraction in the world. And so, you know, in 2009, we had seen, Already an increase in tar sands development, you know the world is sort of running out of the easy to get to deposits of oil. So we, you know, we really saw this as a crossroads where we can start to decrease our reliance on oil altogether, or you can start going after the the bottom of the barrel. You know, the harder stuff to get at, the stuff that's you know more carbon intensive, that uh, costs more, and and uh, causes causes. Uh, way more environmental impact so that that's when we decided to uh, really start opposing these pipelines Keystone XL was, was one of them and it was kind of the, you know, there are a bunch of them but Keystone was sort of the, the biggest and the most immediate threat at that time In terms of scope how
0: much, how many barrels a day were being transported out? If the Keystone XL pipeline had been approved what type of increase would we have seen from the extraction up there?
2: Yeah, so the, uh, and when we started in opposing Keystone XL in 2008-2009, in the tar sands industry as a whole was extracting, I believe it was around 1.75 million barrels a day in Alberta. And, so, and the industry had, had projections to you know, more than triple. They wanted to, to increase to about 6 million barrels a day or more by, by 2030 or so. So you know you'd see these these growth projections that they were hoping to to achieve, and you know the tar sands deposits are unique unique from you know other types of, of fossil fuel reserves because they're essentially landlocked in a very remote place, right? Northern Alberta is not an easy place to get to. There's mountains to the to the west and a, and a you know a, a lot of obstacles to go to the west coast, and so. They have limited pipeline capacity as it is, and, and so for every to to triple in production, they need more pipeline capacity. So Keystone XL would have done just that. It's uh, it's it would have transported 830,000 barrels a day uh, from Alberta down to the to the Texas and Louisiana Gulf Coast, and that's because the refineries down there are already equipped to to process the heavier tar sands crude. Right now they process a lot of heavy crudes from, from places like Venezuela and Mexico, but those are in declining. So it's sort of a, you know, the industry basically wants to get the tar sands down to the Gulf Coast where they can refine it and, and uh, ship it largely to overseas markets.
0: So by stopping the Keystone Pipeline, what do you think the effect is going to be in terms of mitigating like real on-the-ground environmental damage as well as the climate change mitigation impacts. Can you speak to that a little bit?
2: Sure. Well, you know, the denial of the Keystone XL permit, I mean, I think the the easiest way to look at it is it it keeps 830,000 barrels a day of oil in the ground. Of course, there are other pipelines that are proposed that that we're fighting as well, but Keystone XL would have transported that much just on its own. So, And that amount is equivalent to, I think it was 180 million metric tons uh, per year. So it's the equivalent of something like 38 million cars on the road or 50 coal-fired power plants. So it's a lot. Of course, the the State Department's earlier assessments and, and Keystone XL backers would argue, well... It doesn't it doesn't make a difference because this this oil is all coming out of the ground. It's going to get to market some some way or another. So you know you might as well just approve this this pipeline. Um, and that's just that's just not true. We've seen we've seen pipelines successfully opposed now in a number of different directions. The drop in oil prices have have made it even harder for for the tar sands industry to succeed. So lack of pipeline capacity like Keystone XL combined with low oil prices, I mean, right now the, the growth projections for, for tar sands production has, has has flattened considerably.
0: So Sierra Club was obviously, you know, well ahead of its time in terms of seeing the impact and deciding to get involved in this fight. But can you describe for me what it was like when a lot of the other organizations started getting involved? and really putting a ton of grassroots and political support behind this issue.
2: Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, of course, a lot of the, the Canadian groups and, and First Nations have been fighting tar sands for years, and, and some of the Sierra Club and, and NRDC and some of the U.S. groups to some extent. But when we started in 2009, there had, there wasn't really like a big nationwide campaign against tar sands infrastructure. So, Sierra Club decided to get involved and, and really make it a priority. Our executive director, Mike Brune, took it on personally, and became pretty involved. So, in, in 2009, it was it was not a Keystone XL was not a a household name, or frankly, the U.S. public, myself included, didn't know a lot about the tar sands or, or why it myself
0: was, included as well. Right? Yeah. <laughs>
2: I, you know, and I think. People kind of understood that Keystone XL was a was a climate issue, but didn't really understand what was happening in Alberta and put two and two together. So the first couple of years, we 2009 2010, there were a handful of, of groups involved. I think when groups like 350.org and Bill McKibben became involved pretty early on, you know that was a that was a pretty huge addition to the to the campaign. In 2011 was a really pivotal year. We started seeing, you know, 350 and Sierra Club and, and groups like Bold Nebraska and kind of working together on on a lot of these organizing and, and coordinating legal strategies and, and so forth. So, you know, 2011 we started seeing 1,200 people got arrested in front of the White House. We saw a year before Obama's re-election in 2012. It was it was it was November of, of 2011 some tens of thousands of people made a big circle around the White House and, you know, things like that, I mean, were just growing and growing. So, yeah, by 2011, it, it really had turned into a fever pitch where, you know, there were just thousands and thousands of people across the country, you know, entering the climate movement, basically, because of Keystone XL.
0: So can you describe to me what it was like to be in the trenches in 2009, 2010, with a small group of people, and then two thousand eleven hits, and all of a sudden you have this groundswell of support, and you have tens of thousands of people, you have twelve hundred people getting arrested. Mm-hmm. Can you describe for me like what's going through your head
2: over those months? Sure, yeah, it was it was uh well, first of all, I'll just say that i you know as an environmental public interest attorney, you know oftentimes you work on very wonky sort of technical issues that that not a lot of people hear about Uh, so it was quite exciting to see you know the this uh, grassroots movement just just kind of swelling to that level and um, yeah I mean it was it was exciting and it gave us a lot of hope that we might actually win I mean still in in 2010 2011 I think it was I'd say there everyone thought that there was still a you know ninety percent chance that the pipeline would get approved, just based on the the State Department environmental impact statements that you know claimed there was no there was no environmental impact right things like that and we're kind of rebutting that with all these technical uh, comments and experts and and really digging into the uh, the climate impacts the oil spill impact and everything else and so you know you're sort of toiling away and in, in Obscurity and and then to see these the the level of enthusiasm that that grew up around it was was remarkable and it, you know it was uh, it was bizarre at times too to to see once it becomes a once an issue that you're working on becomes a. a political football and the the talking heads are talking about it every day on cable news, yeah. Yeah, they're talking about it every day and they're and they're repeating these talking points that that, you know, oftentimes have no basis in in fact. And then it's often what happens on cable news, yeah. Right. (laughs) You kind of know the the um, validity of the arguments on, on both sides and then you have this sort of the way it's playing out on the on the national talk shows is just you know, an entirely different and, and bizarre thing to see. <laughs>
0: were you paying much attention to to that, to the media, to kind of that broader national
2: conversation? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think it got to a point where it was just, it was just um, had gotten so big that you would have to kind of tune out to, to 75% of the, the coverage. But, you know, what there were uh, obviously when, when a, Influential senator or, or some or thought leader came out uh, opposed to Keystone XL, which happened more and more frequently. Well, that was that was pretty important. When you had president and, and another big interim victory that we had was two thousand thirteen, I guess when when President Obama after his re-election gave a um, his his Georgetown climate speech where he said, "I'm only going to approve Keystone XL if it, if it would not exacerbate." climate pollution so things like that that happened on the national stage i mean that was just absolutely huge because up until then there was no indication that the administration was committed to looking carefully at the climate impacts of this thing
0: so if yeah if the odds at in 2011 are you know 90 it's going to get approved Mm -hmm. like what would what would you say the odds were the day before that
2: georgetown speech the day before the georgetown speech um I, it was they were still pretty high at that point. I mean, the, the part of the and even after the Georgetown speech, I mean, I think that was that was a real turning point. But at that point, the State Department's position was still that there was no climate impacts for the, from the pipeline, right? It was all going to get to market anyway. So you know, I think even even after that speech, there was a real worry that that the president could could lay out this climate test, as as we called it, and still. The State Department could still conclude that Keystone XL was was uh, was fine.
0: So, what keeps you personally motivated in the face of those
2: kind of yeah, like David and Goliath odds? Well, I mean, you know, I, w- I would say Keystone XL has certainly provided an example of, of you know what you can do if you if you stick at it and um, sort of coordinate with it was the legal fights that, that I was most involved in. You had, you know, grassroots organizers around the country working on different parts of it. We had, if you take a really coordinated approach like that and the most powerful industry in the, in the world.
0: So it's, it's almost, to use an analogy, it's almost as if you're, you know, you're rowing upstream mm-hmm. and as a few people kind of get into the boat and start rowing with you, like every person that gets into that boat and starts rowing, is even more more motivation to to row that much harder. Yeah, I would, and eventually that groundswell happens, and all of a sudden you're up the river.
2: Yeah, all of a sudden you reach a, a a tipping point where you know suddenly it looks like, hey, we actually may you know we have a chance at at stopping this thing.
0: So one of the other things I wanted to get into today was in terms of approach, what were some of the specific legal tactics that you were using? Throughout this process, and how did those tactics change as the political conversation changed
2: mm-hmm. sure well the 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 main um, there were a lot of different legal tactics along the way, but I think the main tool is the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, so the State Department has jurisdiction over these over these cross border pipelines. Based on an executive order, and they the, the State Department has to decide whether the pipeline is in the national interest. So it, it has approval or disapproval authority, and in making that decision, they the State Department has to prepare a environmental impact statement, uh, looking at all the the potential impacts of the project, the alternatives, uh, and so forth, and it's that that process allows uh, public participation there's there's notice and comment periods where you can submit say you know expert declarations on on climate impacts and oil spill impacts and so forth and there's often public hearings so it's this there's this this uh, real meaningful opportunity for the public to participate and to influence the agency decision that's sort of how nepa operates it doesn't, NEPA doesn't require any any particular decision one way or the other, but it just requires the agency to, to take a hard look at all the impacts, right? So we use that process to to basically educate the public and the agencies on the, the environmental harms associated with, with the project. And it's sort of, with a project like that, it it's just so happens that the more people learn about the impacts the more they are concerned about it the more they get involved the more they turn out to public hearings I mean so the, so in 2009 2010 you know there's a handful of us working on the the EIS and critiquing it um, and by 2015 the last round there were I think they got the State Department got five million comments on the on the EIS you know so it's like and and each each time the State Department, each round of, of EISs that they prepared, they it had major problems with it. And, you know, they were saying, look, there are no climate impacts of, of this pipeline. There's no oil spill risks. These are the safest pipelines in the world. Meanwhile, Keystone, the first Keystone pipeline, you know, leaks 14 times in the first year in 2012. So, I mean, it was just obvious that the State Department's uh, analysis was, was insufficient. And we were pointing that out and saying, look, you need to go back and, and look at this. You need to redo your analysis. And uh, several times along the way, we succeeded in getting, in, in basically forcing another round of environmental reviews. And and like I said, that, that uh, providing further public involvement just allows the time uh, and attention for the opposition to grow. So that was kind of the main legal, uh, sort of the main legal framework that we were operating in. And then you had all kinds of, um, of other issues that, that played a huge role. One of them is uh, in, in Nebraska, for example, the you know each the pipeline to get built through several of these states, they, each state has to has to grant the pipeline the use of eminent domain to basically seize people's properties along the pipeline route and you know you had this comp- this canadian company that was coming into nebraska and oklahoma and and basically bullying people you know ranchers and farmers that are are not traditional liberal environmentalists these were people that have you know been ranching for generations and here you have this com- corporation coming in saying look we're going to we're going to uh, build this huge pipeline across your property so we can transport canadian oil to overseas markets i mean it just didn't Sit well. So there were a lot of legal fights on the on the eminent domain front. Um, they a lot in Nebraska in particular. They the the landowners uh, with the help of Jane Clebb and Bold Nebraska, they really did a good job of organizing and, and fighting the eminent domain. Uh, and and the Nebraska legal challenges associated with that were proved to be pretty important because that caused a couple of the State Department delays along the way. So how did your tactics change, if at all, through that process? Well, I would say the our, our tactics, I would say the industry's tactics changed to some extent, and we had to respond to those, and to some extent we're still responding to them. The the industry has seen what, what Keystone XL and, and the public... Participation, you know, how how grassroots organizing can can stop a, a major project like this or tie it up for years, and so they're going to greater and greater lengths now to avoid that. Right, we're seeing Enbridge and these other pipeline companies changing tactics, and instead of and basically doing everything they can to avoid any public input, any any environmental impact statement. So we're seeing them a lot of times artificially break a project up into a bunch of little pieces and approve them. You know they're trying to segment these and say, look, there's only this, this little pipeline over here, no environmental impacts and then there's one happens to be one right next to it that's connected. And so they're trying to treat, treat them as, as various projects that, that don't uh, without looking at the big picture, that's something that we're seeing. We're seeing the industry um, try to try to reverse a lot of existing pipelines that are that are already in the ground increase the capacity of others so so basically as a response to Keystone XL I think the industry is is piecing together all these little pipelines through largely through the Great Lakes region and so we have we have a lot of battles on our hands uh, on that front
0: so in terms of the the punch counterpunch what is the what is the counterpunch to that that industry
2: response it's uh, we're working on that but it's I mean we we we've, we've been litigating a lot of the the uh, I mean the law is clear that they're not you know you can't segment these these projects like that so we're fighting a lot of those in the courts but also I think Keystone XL was was important in another sense in that it it really emboldened people to to you know fight these pipeline projects in their backyard I mean now we're seeing not only not only tar sands and not only oil but these fracked gas pipelines uh, on the East Coast, all over the country, really, there's just this whole network of, of pipelines and other infrastructure uh, pieces that are being proposed, and pretty much meeting opposition everywhere they go now. And, and there's been a lot of successes. So it's, I think, seven or eight years ago, a lot of these projects would just go through without any real opposition, and uh, it's a whole new it's a whole new world now. So what do you think?
0: I mean, with that in mind. What do you think killing Keystone has accomplished in terms of you know, just the project in and of itself, but then the ripple effects that it's had subsequently?
2: Sure. Well, like I said, I mean, the, you know, Keystone XL itself would have carried between eight and 900,000 barrels a day of oil. So that much of oil right there that that is presumably... Shot in with without the Keystone XL capacity, um, billions and, of barrels of oil that yeah, are kept in the ground exactly, and it would have you know the thing would have operated for forty or fifty years, and it would have it was something it was something like one hundred and eighty million metric tons of carbon pollution per year. So that just the capacity of Keystone XL right there, that is uh, equivalent to thirty-eight million cars on the road or fifty coal-fired power plants. So you know it's not just a symbolic thing. I mean that that right there is is a is a substantial amount of of uh, carbon pollution. But I think it also, like I said, sort of emboldened the the climate movement. It brought a lot of you know millions of people into the into the fight and just created this groundswell of opposition to to infrastructure fights everywhere. So there's now I mean after Keystone XL there's been this real growing uh, broader movement to keep fossil fuels in the ground. I mean, that's not something that had much traction even a few years ago and now I mean, we're seeing both democratic uh, presidential candidates have been talking about it. Some there you know there's a there's, there's some senators have proposed keep it in the ground bills, you know. I mean, scientists are increasingly warning that we need to keep something like 80% of proven fossil fuel reserves in the ground in order to avoid climate disaster. And I think until a year ago, even not that many people were actually taking that seriously, or or there wasn't much of a a movement behind it. And now we've seen, I mean, the Obama administration has, has, um, you know, put a moratorium on um, federal coal leasing, canceled offshore drilling in the Atlantic. There's, there's pipelines all over the country that are that are being uh, denied. So there's just this real growing keep it in the ground movement that that what didn't exist a couple of years ago. And I think that's largely due to the success of Keystone XL.
0: So in light of the success, you always want to be refining because it's you're winning the battle, but the goal is to win the war, mm-hmm. right? Is to keep those 80% mm-hmm. fossil fuels in the ground mm-hmm. to get to Eighty percent renewables by 2050, if not faster. All right. Uh, so, what are some of the key lessons learned throughout this seven-year battle, and how are you applying those to fights that you're fighting
2: today? Well, I think the I think the main lesson was this was was the importance of a of a coordinated strategy that that brings in all different aspects of the of the uh, Opposition, so I think you know. As a lawyer, you know, you oftentimes tend to tend to think that legal challenges are the best way to address something. I think grassroots organizers often might might think that getting out in the streets is is the most important. And communications folks, you know, might think that that um, you know media and, and press coverage. Is, so I think what I've learned, the biggest lesson that I've taken from Keystone XL is it's not it can't be any one thing you know there's there's uh the legal stuff is important but if we didn't have tens of thousands of people out in the streets this thing would have gotten proved years ago um and it's the same so you so you really have to sort of have have this coordinated approach where you're working with all the different different aspects and uh to to really attack a problem from from all sides and i think sierra club is is one of one of our strengths because we are you know we do have all those capacities and we do have the membership base in every state and and so forth so so yeah we're i think trying to take that approach to to a lot of the other challenges that we're seeing around the country
0: which is a great segue to ask yeah what are some of the the next battlegrounds what is going to be the next battle cry so to speak,
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I I don't know if there will be you know, any single project that that gets as much publicity as as Keystone XL.
0: And sometimes you can't know that, right? Where like in 2010, you would have never predicted, right? Keystone would have
2: turned into this massive movement. Exactly. Um, exactly. So here we are speculating. But I do think that I mean there are some projects that we've that we've become increasingly focused on. There's a pipeline called Alberta Clipper that was actually uh, approved in 2009 by the State Department. And it's another tar sands pipeline that would that was built, and it transports about 450,000 barrels a day of crude oil from Alberta to the Great Lakes region. And Enbridge, this is one of the, the sort of piecing-it-together solutions that the industry is, is uh, relying on. So Enbridge is the company, and they're trying to double the capacity of it so that's also right before the state department it's the exact same permit that Keystone XL needed and then right right next to it in actually the same right of way is another Enbridge pipeline called line 3 and and we're just trying to double the capacity of that too so so together all of these these incremental increases in capacity and so forth would be about the size of Keystone XL and yet they're not they haven't become a sort of a household name so we're, we're trying to um, prevent the state department from from ramping up the capacity of those pipelines and that's something we've been fighting for years alongside keystone xl it just so happens that one's kind of proceeded in the in the shadows a little bit
0: sure well yeah it helps it <laughs> when you're when you're going after the juggernaut yeah, yeah that's right. yeah that becomes the heavyweight battle yeah and so yeah certainly some of these down ticket fights yeah. aren't going to get as much attention but i you know hopefully a couple years from now we're we're talking again and and talking about some subsequent victories
2: right yeah i hope so too
0: <laughs> so doug thank you so much for joining us today really appreciate it sure thanks for having me forward to checking back in with Doug in future episodes. With 2016 now officially the hottest year in recorded history, it is becoming harder and harder to ignore or dismiss the effects of climate change. As a result, expect to see more pipelines being protested, more coal-fired power plants being opposed, and more local communities banning fracking. But that is only one side of the balance sheet. It is equally important that change makers also focus on adding renewable energy to the grid moving to electric vehicles, and improving battery storage technology. We don't have to sacrifice comfort to breathe easy. We just need a little bit of political willpower. Please tune in to our next episode. We'll be profiling Detroit Bikes, a company trying to bring American manufacturing back to the city of Detroit, all while building a carbon-free form of transportation. And if you have a moment, please review us on iTunes. It really helps to get the word out about a better tomorrow. Until next time, I'm your host, Nick Kerwin. Thanks for joining us.